Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, the quarantine continues. So it's just another full-on Netflix and chat episode, this time about the, the controversial, I guess you could call it, if people cared enough, episode of Duncanville about his little sister mock-marrying him that I mentioned last week, as well as the HBO miniseries McMillions, the Netflix miniseries Tiger King, the I've I finally finished Disney Plus's The Mandalorian and also rewatched DuckTales, the movie Treasure of the Lost Lamp. So let's get started. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the popcorn junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. So yeah, to kick things off, I uh, sat through that ep- new episode of Duncanville that had to do with the sister marriage, and honestly, it wasn't too bad. Uh, it mainly dealt with like mock uh, marriage stereotypes, like you know, all our marriages on the rocks. We're so bored and boring, and you know, the spark is gone from it, and then it plays it up like the uh, teenage, you know, Duncan and Jin. Jing's um, mock marriage is in the same position. It's it's not as awful as I thought it was. And in fact, more of the episode is based on middle child jokes. Like the fact that uh, Ricky Lindholm's character, the middle child, can can basically just get away with anything because nobody cares. So, um, and then the uh, parents' plot has to deal with them trying to rediscover... That's that, you know, joie de vivre, that, that spark in their marriage. And they do so at like an 80s club. And it's it's still all right. Like, once again, Duncanville's initial season is going to be a bit rocky. A lot of first seasons are. If they manage to get to a second season, then maybe it'll get better. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, if you are checking out Duncanville, give it a shot. See if you like it. And uh, we'll see if it manages to make it past one season. Uh, I, I mentioned, I think I mentioned last week that I started watching McMillions over on HBO and I finished it this week and it's, whew, it's, it's a hell of a story. Like, um, we're going to get, Tiger King's a bit more like chaotic in terms of its story, but McMillions is, is like full on, like you wouldn't imagine the McDonald's Monopoly game to be rife with corruption and organized crime, and yet there it is. I think what's interesting is that all the characters, like, from the FBI down, all the characters are really compelling. Like, you've got the one rookie guy who walks in, like, to, to, to to one of his meetings in a gold suit, and he's always cracking jokes, and he's like, he's all, he is, like, almost the stereotype of, like, the rookie agent trying to make something of himself. But, um, yeah, and then, of course, the actual criminal criminality involving uh, around apparently one of the members of uh, one of the big one of the uh, five crime families in New York. I've I, I read uh, on Wikipedia, apparently. And, yeah, the, like the fact that the one dude took his winnings, started a strip club when people didn't like that. He made it into a church. With a, you know, so it's a it's it's a church, technically, but it's still a strip club. It's just they have you know Bibles around all the time, <laughs> and you're praying at the church titties. 
it really was like it's we're dealing with some wacky people out there uh, in this story and but uh, but on top of that it gets crazier like we're talking about extortion and like full-on mafioso level criminal activity and it the whole thing is is crazy and then in the middle of this investigation, the FBI accidentally sent it to a newspaper who thankfully didn't break the story before they finished. And so they managed to get everybody involved arrested before the story broke. And it really is crazy. And then, of course, in the wake of it, the marketing company that designed the game because it was one of their employees who kind of organized the crime, the criminal you know, or, you know, the criminal, like, stealing of all of their winnings that they went down. The printing company that printed all of the, all of the stuff for this thing, they, they had to go bankrupt. The family surround, all the, you know, because of this guy going to prison, the entire family is in shambles. Like, they're fighting over the, who gets to see the guy's kids. And it's, it really is, like, everything went to hell all because all because some asshole decided to try and game the system, and so it, it so yeah everything sucks for these people now because some asshole thought he could get away with it, and he managed to for like almost twenty years, and then he he finally had he finally finally came to an end, so yeah uh, so yeah it, it, it's a really compelling thing if you get the chance check it out on HBO. Um, Along with that, let's talk about the other crazy doc, doc mini doc series uh, over on Netflix, Tiger King, the one everybody's talking about. That bitch, Carol. What's ah crap? What's her name? Um, like I'm seeing them all all, all over Facebook now. Uh, Carol Baskins, Carol Baskins. So yeah, that bitch, Carol Baskins. God, that whole thing, like McMillions is tame compared to Tiger King. Like, McMillions is getting, is like a, a ride off a of Coke. Tiger King is a ride off a of meth. Like, you're, it is a, that kind of difference. So yeah, McMillions is like, you know, steady and easy compared to Tiger King, which is off the rails crazy. Because you're dealing with all kinds of egos within the world of exotic animal trading and sale and keeping and so you've got this everybody has got blood on their hands essentially exotic joe is this madman egomaniac who tried thought he got who got so big he thought he could run for president then brought it down to oklahoma governor and basically his entire life spiraled out of control because of this feud with a another wildlife um you know, another big cat woman, uh, Carol Baskins, who one episode is, uh, showcases, she is absolutely insane. Like, it, she's treated like the sweet, innocent, oh, shucks, how could she, you know, she's like the Betty White, uh, uh, you know, of the, of the big cat exotic animal world. But everybody involved in that trade will tell you, she is essentially the, um, mommy dearest, Joan Crawford of the thing. Like, she is constantly... Even the, um, like, all her money comes from her late husband, who disappeared mysteriously, and everybody has figured she is behind it. And they can't pinpoint what exactly she did with the body, 
but that there's so much mounting evidence to showcase that she definitely is a violent and crazy woman, despite the fact that she tries to play sweet and innocent for the camera. And then the rest of the time, we're dealing with a guy, you know, the guy who inspired Exotic Joe to get into the trade, uh, who grooms young women to into his harem, and then, um, and, and then uh, Exotic Joe himself, who uh, got into a pol you know polygamist gay marriage. So cool, but at the same time, those guys were were brought in with promises of drugs and playing with the big cats, and they weren't actually gay. And yeah, the, this whole story is madness. And then of course, in fighting Carol Baskins. Exotic Joe went enti went completely bankrupt, bankrupted his entire family, and his zoo had to be bought out by this guy named Jeff Lowe, who had to deal, who had to then deal with all of Joe's insanity as Joe tried to embezzle. Joe's still in jail, and he's he's, he's going to be serving time for at least twenty two years for all for attempting to put a hit on Carol Baskins. He hated her so much. It's. It is absolutely insane. As the and as the documentary goes on, you see how Joe goes from being this kind of wacky, crazy guy, you know, this character, you know, this crazy character, into being a stone cold like madman. Like his, like he goes from being eccentric to being a absolutely dangerous, like con consistently threatening people. And so, like, his eccentricities were, like, crazy and wild. It's like, it's just part of his charm. And then as time went on, you begin to realize, oh, oh, no, this this dude's just dangerous. This dude is out of his mind crazy. And, yeah, it's it's absolutely insane. And, and this, what's interesting is all of the people involved with these exotic animals have some criminal background. So, like, it, they try to play up the fact that, oh, these are criminals. Why don't you trust these these monsters and like one of the big guy, one of the big um, you know, owners and proprietors of these exotic animals was a was a former drug kingpin and uh, and he served as the inf inspiration for for Tony Montana, and yet the whole reason he did that the drug enterprise was to help take care of these big cats and these animals that he loved. So it's like this this weird thing of like there's these people who are criminals. But they're all bound together by this love of animals. And they think that owning these, they have this, you know, they want to own these animals. But sometimes, um, and what's interesting is that even Carol Baskins herself started off as a breeder. And eventually she kind of got into her head that uh, humans shouldn't own the animals. They sh but at the same point, like, she still technically owns the animals. Like, they call it a rescue, but it's not like she's going to be returning to them to the wild or anything like that. She still technically owns them. Plus, not to mention the fact that her entire labor force is free. She's basically using, inter quote, internships as an excuse for free labor. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's it's everybody involved in the story is insane and and mad, but also endearing in some in some capacity. So like Carol, you see you see Carol Baskins and you think, oh, she's you know inundated with all these threats, but at the same time, like she probably had something to do with the disappearance of her husband and most likely exploited you know exploited his disappearance in order to gain his money. 
So she's not exactly she's she's no hero. Not to mention the fact that you know she puts on a clean face, but she's like uh, Darla Dimple in Cats Don't Dance, like clean clean pretty face for the camera, and then she's a monster behind the scenes when nobody's looking. And then you have Exotic Joe, who's a wild card, uh, you know, all the time. But when he went, you know, so but all but then as time goes on and and his drug fueled madness gets crazier. He ends up only doing more harm to to everyone around him and bringing himself down because of his own ego and his own um, neuroses and psychoses. It's 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 wild. It is absolutely wild. This whole endeavor, like you never pictured this sort of thing. And I think that's what's interesting about documentaries like this and McMillions is that there are these wild and crazy underbellies to the most mundane things. You're talking like the McDonald's Monopoly game and exotic animals kind of you know, brought about this weird coalescence of crime and drugs and just madness. And yeah, I, I love documentary stuff like this. So it's uh, I'm interested to see what the next big one's going to be. Also, um, yeah, go check out Exotic Joe's crazy country music songs too because they're a hoot um at any rate uh the next one uh, i finished up mandalorian uh took me forever to finally finish up but yeah it's it's a really excellent it's probably the best thing to come out of star wars honestly like we got a film quality production an extended story that's really well told uh you know, there's, of course, the Baby Yoda thing. Uh, great mix of CG and prosthetics. And despite the fact that there's reference to um, characters from the Skywalker saga, it's wholly reliant on its own characters. So it's within the same universe, but doesn't feel beholden to constantly reference everything from the Skywalker saga, like the sequel trilogy ended up doing. And... Uh, not to mention the fact the on-location shooting. Like, everything about this is, like, the best parts of Star Wars distilled into a solid TV series. And uh, I think probably my favorite episodes were uh, the second episode. Ah, uh, crap. Um, yeah, I think the second episode where he uh, fights the horned beast, the, the Celadont, what, the giant, you know, the giant hairy rhino. As well as uh, the last couple episodes where the, everything comes together. The the uh, Seventh Samurai episode is ac is excellent as well. Plus the supporting cast. Carl Weathers, Werner Herzog, Taika Waititi as um, the IG unit. Gina Carano, Ming-Na Ming sadly wasted. I wish she was in it longer, but she has a great cameo in it. Uh, Bill Burr is in it for an episode. And then, of course, Giancarlo Esposito has a great setup for hopefully season two. And, of course, uh, Richard Iowade uh, is also in it for uh, for the same uh, Bill Burr episode, which is like a prison break episode. It's an interesting setup. Like, if they had more, you get the feeling that if they had more episodes, then they would have been more of those sort of like filler, you know, job of the week sort of gigs. And, um... Yeah, so like the Prison Break episode one week or the Seventh Samurai episode another week. It felt like if that if they went for like a 13-episode season, there'd be more of that. So maybe that's what we're going to expect from season two. Uh, also, the fact that 
uh, th between this and Rise of Skywalker, I have no idea just how much the Force can actually heal you. Because, like, Skywalker, Rise of Skywalker and what Baby Yoda did in this in this series kind of like completely threw out the window the whole point of revenge of the sith where it's just like oh oh uh like like seriously all the jedi had to do was use the force to heal and then like everything from the original trilogy wouldn't have happened in revenge of the, like and revenge of the sith would have been pointless is now even more pointless because of how magical heal magically healing the force is uh, so yeah, it's a very interesting, solid ending, and uh, you know, get you know, it, it, it hits you right in the feels, and because of uh, how what they did with the IG unit, and uh, I'm really excited to see what they do for uh, season two when they get that finished, because uh, I'm guessing that was delayed as part of the quarantine, but uh, I, I'm I'm sure they'll put it on the back burner for right now, and then get back get back into it once everything's uh, kind of coalesced and calmed down. The last thing I watched this week was I had an itch to rewatch the old DuckTales movie, the one that finished off the 87 series, which was basically Aladdin before Aladdin. And um, yeah, DuckTales the movie, Treasure of the Lost Lamp. It holds up for the most part, honestly. Um, there's a bunch of Arab stereotypes that don't hold up, especially the, uh, hench pers the uh, henchman towards the main villain. And... I, at the same point, like, I think it's a really solid ending point for the DuckTales. Because that's all the aspects of the show in this feature-length storyline that works really well. And uh, Rip Taylor is a genie. is hit or miss. Like, sometimes he's fine, but a lot of times... Like, when he's trying to say, I'm a real boy, but it's Rip Taylor's voice. And it's like, I don't like that. Um... Because he sounds old, like no matter, no matter, like it's Rip Taylor. If you wanted him to sound like a kid, get somebody who sounds like a kid. Don't make him sound like he's ninety years old, <laughs> claiming he wants to be a real boy. Ugh. Um, but yeah, like a lot of it is. The only problem is that the animation can go from like absolutely phenomenal to cookie, you know, like really cutting corners, cheapo TV animation. And so, like, the really good stuff stands out and then is immediately followed or preceded by really cheapo-looking TV animation. I think it's, it's, I think they, they do manage to get better, especially with, like, the direct-to-video sequels down the line. So, to the point where it's almost comparable to the, um, feature-length, uh, movies. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really, I, I think the, my biggest concerns are the villain who is played fantastically by Christopher Lloyd. You never think of him as a villain, but he is perfectly maniacal in this. Except in the in the uh, lead into the third act, he is treated as like a comedic role where it's just like he constantly keeps getting bopped and he's part of all of this wacky hijinks and physical humor that I feel completely detracts from his character. I get that they wanted to have a more comedic villain. You know, they didn't want to have a completely serious villain, but I think making him too comedic underplays just how powerful and evil he is. And I think they that was a mistake. Um, also, the early bits of the kids wishing for stuff with Genie is kind of it, it is kind of the draggiest point of the thing. Whereas once the commando mission comes in where the kids have to go in and help uh, Uncle Scrooge get the lamp back from uh, Dijon, 
uh, like I said, the uh, Arab stereotyping is really bad in this movie. But um, yeah, the commando bit is really excellent. I always remember that. And then the uh, transformation of uh, of uh, Scrooge of the McDuck vault and building into the villain's lair is just some of the best uh, 2D animation from Disney, honestly. Like it's 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 not gonna it's like top twenty I'll say because there's definitely better bits but it certainly is a fantastic bit of like hor almost like horrific transformation of um this uh and you know the thing that you've seen for at that point three years suddenly transformed into this monstrous uh just just villain's lair and it's fantastic. What's interesting is that. All of, a lot of the story beats from Aladdin are in this movie, and I'm curious as to which, how much of Aladdin was in production before the, you know, before this came out, because that's a lot of coincidences. I've got to say, I mean, a lot of it probably just comes from the uh, the story from a, from a, a Thousand and One Arabian Nights, but still, it's just like. You never really like that. That's a comparison and a half to look into Ta Treasure the Lost Lamp and, Al and the original Aladdin. <laughs> um, right down to having a comedian play the genie. <laughs> like, seriously. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, if you haven't checked that out and you're a fan of the original DuckTales uh, series, it's a great end cap to that whole thing. I have to check that out now. Uh, I have to go back and check out the original series because I never got the chance to really sit down with it. I've only really seen the movie. But uh, that's all I watched this week, and uh, we're going to get into the discussion portion, which is all about cinematic releases in the home. Hey, do you like Pokemon? Yeah! Do you like Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah! Well, what if I told you, you could have them both together? That sounds a copyright infringement. Don't mention that. I mean, um, yeah. Then check out Dungeons and Dragon Types, the D&D 5th edition actual play podcast, where the players are Pokemon trainers, and all the battles are between Pokemon. There will be evil organizations to fight, Pokemon gyms, contests, all in a whole new fan-made region. Don't miss out on the fun. Listen to Dungeons and Dragon Types, available only on Gumby Cat Networks. <laughs> followed my twitter i put out a thing that um was asking about more information about filmmakers specifically not just actors but filmmakers writers and directors and producers losing their minds on twitter like having full-on meltdowns because i wanted to tie into the guns akimbo director full-on harassing um uh these critics most of whom were women of color um, or, you know, you know, they were, you know, people of color, um, I think specifically black, um, critics and, uh, a couple of which were, uh, black women. Um, he full on harassed them. I think, I don't, I don't know the full extent of everything he did, but he eventually had, was, had his Twitter account removed. And then he went on to continue the harassment 
through the official movie Twitter Twitter account. So if you had any interest in seeing Guns Akimbo, just know that the director is an absolute piece of garbage. But I wanted to, and so I wanted to kind of look into the history of that, but I didn't really find a lot. A lot of the Twitter meltdowns are coming from like just overall celebrities and actors and, you know, just people in the, in, in the public consciousness, not specifically uh, filmmakers. So I didn't really have a whole lot to go on. And then it occurred to me, uh, there's a lot of buzz going about how, I think I, I, I at least saw one tweet uh, commenting on in the wake of the coronavirus, Amazon Prime, and I know AMC Stubbs is doing it. AMC is doing it through their Stubbs program to release theatrical, you know, to put theatrical releases up for home rental or purchase. And the person was saying that this could spell the end of the cinema as we know it. And so I decided to leapfrog off of that. And so basically explain what, what they're talking about. So what uh, in the wake of the coronavirus outbreak um, and the, you know, the COVID sort of pandemic, Amazon Prime and AMC specifically are the two I found, mainly Amazon Prime, have started a thing where the theatrical releases at the time of the outbreak and at the time of the quarantine were put up early for VOD in, for $20 a pop. And some were for rent and some were for purchase. It wasn't really consistent either. And people were kind of commenting on that being the new future of cinema. But at the same point, like AMC kind of already had that going on. And what I think of it is, is it's more akin to expanding your user base because not because even outside of a quarantine there are just some people who can't afford to go to theaters so amc offering a premium to their number one their uh subscribers and then on top of that an extra purchase that their subscribers have to make um but it still allows you if you don't have the time or the resources to constantly go out to the movies, that option allow to see the movies at home is something that some people would be willing to pay. Now, people were saying 20 bucks is too much, but I wanted to, and so I kind of wanted to break down the economics of it. So like oh, currently on Amazon, it's Bloodshot, which I highly recommend, Emma, which I also highly recommend. Uh, I still believe uh, onward, the way back, you know, all the big stuff I talked about in the lead up to the quarantine. Those are all up for pre for purchase or rental right now. And the, both on Amazon Prime and uh, AMC uh, Stubbs, they are $19.99 a piece. Now, I guess my question is, why why make a difference between the purchase and the rental? Should it not be a rental instead of a complete purchase? I think ideally I would just make it a rental to kind of incentivize the fact that you should be seeing this in the theaters. Because personally speaking, yeah, the theatrical experience is going to be twice as much as that on a on, just by yourself. For you know, you know, just by yourself, unless you go for like discounts and deals and go on like a cheap day, see things in a matinee. 
most of the time, it's going to cost you about twice as much to see theatrical releases as just paying 20 bucks to see it at home. But I feel like it'd be much more beneficial to make it rentals than to make it outright purchases. I feel like until it's out of theaters, you don't allow it for for purchase. Because even, you know, like, and then even if you really like it, then you can just pre-order it or something like that. As much as people despise pre-orders, and that's the thing is that you don't technically own it anyway. It's just on Amazon service for as long as they're willing to hold it. But, yeah, that's, that's a whole other thing. I could go on a whole other discussion about digital user rights and ownership and how it doesn't exist because companies have taken it away from you, but... There's Jim Sterling Inquisition's all about that on the game's end. It's the same thing for movies. And yet, I, you know, so for the um, for this kind of program, I think it's great. The One of my biggest gripes with musical theater, with live theater, Broadway, opera, a lot of it is that there is an exclusivity that people get that not everybody, you know, that kind of keeps people, it's a, it's a kind of financial gatekeeping. And the Met is getting better about it, but Broadway is still very stingy about what shows get showcased to public at large who can't come to Broadway to see it. And I think that's a big, you know, that's a big, you know, that kind of thing is absurd. That ideally you should allow things for people who can't go to places either because of the disabilities or financial concerns, or time constraints, and to limit that li limit to what people can, you know, you know, can have and experience by you know how much money they make, whether or not they can get out to the to theaters, either cinema or uh, live theaters, um, how much time they have available to them. I think that's completely unfair, and I think. You know the what the Mets doing where they could brought where they broadcast show you know showing you know the productions of their operas to theaters across the country is fantastic because even though it's not seeing it live at the Met you are seeing a staged production and a lot of those theatrical productions like I remember um there was a Romeo and Juliet production that my uh, I call him my uncle but it's basically my ex aunt's new husband um uh you know too much uh. <laughs> name dropping so he's if you don't know if you don't know him he's the mayor in the early seasons uh mary he's the mayor of dc in the early seasons of um uh house of cards uh so he's been a long long time actor mainly on stage and so he was in a production of romeo and juliet where orlando bloom played romeo and it was a mixed race production because he's a black he you know he's a black actor and so the Capulets were black and the Montagues were white. And so they added this extra level to the production by making it now about race. And it's an interesting tactic in the production. And it was a fantastic production. And it was interesting to watch it on in theaters and as, you know, as like a live, semi-life production. And it was, and it was cool and interesting. And, um... I think stuff like that as allowing people to experience these theatrical productions. Fathom Events is helping to expand that more, but but kind of breaking down those gates and allowing more people to experience these things, to give you know, given their um, you know their own 
restraints by uh, what they're capable of seeing is good. And so I think simultaneous release in terms of and going to the, the it comes out in theater and then like AMC Stubbs, you can rent it at home for 20 bucks for 24 hours or for 48 hours. And people will say, well, 20 bucks, that's so steep. The most expensive theatrical ticket is $13. By making it 20 bucks, that kind of covers for about a ticket and a half or, or in some places, two tickets. And that covers for whoever wants, whoever you're showing the movie to, whether it's by yourself or with a family. This is especially beneficial for families and for big groups. And so you're, what the, the other thing you're cutting out is theater, seeing, a thing, seeing a movie on the big screen is a really amazing experience for things like blockbusters or compelling dramas, you know, things that... And I think what we're coming down to is some we're going to kind of differentiate between what should be in theaters, what's going to be better for theaters, and what works better at home. I mean, people now have, you know, semi-theatrical quality, if not full-on theatrical quality, uh, you know, screening rooms in their homes, but that's for the super rich. You have to be super wealthy, or at least wealthy enough to kind of afford all of it, and a lot of people still don't have that, so... The closest thing they'll get to that is a theater. And so I don't think the cinema is completely dead. I think people are kind of overplaying that hand. Because, you know, there are going to be people like me who, one, can't afford to have a full-on full theatrical experience at the home. And two, just like seeing things on the big screen. Some, movie, some movies are just amazing on the big screen. And even seeing stuff at home, like, they're still fairly limiting. But, um, yeah, it's going to be... Interesting to see what happens from here on out. But uh, I think having it in a limited capacity, not full-on like available to everybody, or at least available through a certain service, like AMC Stubbs, like Amazon Prime. I think having that sort of thing that allows people to join into the thing, but not, you know, but it's still that barrier of entry being, you still have to pay 20 bucks for like a 48-hour experience. Or for a 24-hour experience. And once you start the thing, you it returns to the theater. It returns and you lose it once it, once your time has run out. Once you started it and once you've... Because um, all that technology has been, has been kind, of, um, kind of mastered by Amazon and Apple and all those companies. So I think making a theatrical rental for people who want to stay at home but want to check out the movie... I think making it a rental is good. But the problem is a lot of these movies are for purchase, meaning you could be purchasing a movie to own, quote unquote, that you may not even like. So I think making it a rental and then having the opportunity to purchase it a couple weeks after the a couple weeks into the theatrical run is a much better idea because here let's break let, let's take a look at uh amazon and take a look at the movies that they've got going so for onward it is per it is a purchase there is no rental it is a purchase 
you own the movie. Birds of Prey is also a purchase. Take a look. I still believe it was a rental. You don't get to own the movie, you can only rent it. Bloodshot is a purchase. The Call of the Wild is a purchase. The Invisible Man is a rental. The Hunt is a rental. But the, but the Way Back is a purchase, and Emma is a rental. There's, I think the only differentiation may be studio. Like, I, um, trying to see what, okay, so Focus Features released M Emma. Disney, pick, Disney Pixar is, uh, uh, Onward is Disney Pixar. Birds of Prey is Warner Brothers, which is, uh, Time Warner, uh, which is AT&T Time Warner. God damn. That's the one thing I would love to see is, a, is somebody to kind of completely go full um, Teddy Roosevelt and bust up the media conglomerates. Um, I still believe is Lionsgate. Um, Bloodshot is Sony. Call of the Wild is 20th Century Pictures. Or I think it's uh, uh, Searchlight Pictures. Uh, Invisible Man is Universal. The Hunt is Universal, I think. I know it's Blumhouse. So yeah, it's Universal Pictures as well. So both the Universal Pictures movies are for rent, as well as Lionsgate. And then so is Focus Features, but The Way Back, which is a production from Warner Brothers, is for purchase. So it looks like, depending on the studio, is whether or not it's for rental or for purchase. And I think, honestly, you'd be better off just making everything while it's in theaters for rent. And then in the case of the, in the case of in the meantime for these, um, for the, during the quarantine, keep the release schedule the same, but have it for rent on Amazon or AMC or various other, uh, entities instead of having it full on for purchase. Because I think that's my concern is that I don't want to purchase a movie if I'm not guaranteed to enjoy it in some capacity. Like that's limited. Like knowing that I'd have to purchase um, Bloodshot or The Call of the Wild when it got mixed reviews, that's not going to make me want to check it out. But if it was a rental, then I could see for myself and then upgrade that to a purchase. So I think... I think making it a rental system rather than a complete buyout system, because that's the other question, because these are not the traditional uh, purchases, the purchasing system, can you get refunds? I don't know. I haven't really experimented with this yet. Uh, and hopefully if I can get some more money coming in, then I can try it out for myself. But ultimately, yeah, it's... I, it, I cannot guarantee, you know, this, this whole thing is very experimental and, and I'm not sure how well it's going to work. So there's going to be some hiccups and we're going to have to iron out some of the wrinkles in it. But I think $20 is a fair enough price. I think too low and you're just basic and you're just basically making it one ticket purchase for like 20 people. I think having that $20 uh, barrier of entry compensates for more than a single ticket purchase that you would get if you went to the cinemas.
And as for like this being the future of cinema, I could see it. I think having that option available for people who are stuck at home from disability or who are restrained from having to take the time out of their day to go to the movies, especially if you're a family, like this would be great for families to watch theatrical releases at home with the kids and not have to pay exorbitant prices to go to the cinemas. Like that would be fantastic for lower income families. And yeah, I think, I think having that option available would be good. I think making it a rental instead of a purchase is better until like a month into the release. One month after release, I figure enough people would have seen it either in the theaters or through the rental system that they could decide whether or not they liked it and then they can just purchase it. Uh, I have the purchase option available afterwards. But I, but as, but as for like purchasing bloodshot like as much as i liked it you may not like it so me telling you to go see bloodshot you paid 20 bucks to try and watch it on amazon and you hated it so do you get your money back from that like i think the system needs to be fine-tuned and kind of figure out how to handle it but i do think having that option available would open so many doors and would bring in a whole new um income stream for studios and I think, I think, you know, cause that's the whole other thing is that until this quarant until this, uh, pandemic dies down, people are not going to be wanting to be cramped in a, in a sometimes very small space together, you know, right next to each other in order to see something in order to see something. So they're not going to be running back to the theaters in order, you know, until the, we're, we're much more comfortable being around each other again. And there's not a scare of passing on a deadly virus. But this also brings up an interesting idea. The return of the drive-in. Because in the wake of social distancing, now would be the time to bring back the drive-in theater. You would have the social distancing of having from car to car. You would be well over six feet apart. And you would be confined within your own little bubble, and then um, you know you would you would be able to maintain social distancing as well as allow for barriers of entry when it comes to passing things off. But you would still be able to watch the thing, and then instead of doing it through like the radio or like these old methods that they used to do, run it through the app, run it through an app system, and then you you know you sign in with your code for like the way you do um, Jackbox or all these other things where you have a code for what screen you're at. And then that way you can get the audio through your car system through the app. It's a, you know, a modern day take on the drive-in. It's possible you would need the technology to kind of bring it up to date to the 20th cent to the 21st century. And I think you, I think bringing back the drive-in in that way would be an would be a way to bring back the theatrical experience to people who are not ready to jump back into crowded indoor theaters. The only problem with that is you would need space for a drive-in, and there's not a lot of places with that space right now. So you would have to find the place to re to rebuild these old drive-ins that have all gone away. But this could be a chance to revitalize the drive-in industry. So. Bringing back drive-in theaters 
I'm just saying, now's the time. You know, once the pandemic is rolled out and the people are going back out, but they're not ready to all confine into a tiny space, bring back the drive-in. Just saying. Uh, the only problem with that is it's limited to one screen, you know, like a couple of movies per night. It has to be at night. So, yeah, there's only there's only so many things. But, hey, now would be the time. Uh, but, yeah, there's going to be a it's going to be a slow rebuilding process, although considering that we're already in a quarantine and there's still people just out and about like nothing's happened. Who knows? We could be right back into theaters being crowded to see the next big thing. And, uh, you know, we're back to where we started after, after trying to lower the curve. <sighs> anyway, that's a whole other thing. So yeah. Um, coinc you know, co you know, coinciding theatrical releases, with a digital rental, I think that's a fantastic idea to expand your um, business and expand your ticket sales uh, across, you know, to places that, you know, and there may be some offset between people who aren't going out to the theater, so they're going to be paying less. So there may be some drops and stuff, but at the same point, like, I think allowing for that option is much better for the consumer at large. And I think breaking down that gate event, that barrier of entry is fantastic. Destroy all the gates. You know, there's <laughs> gatekeeping is awful no matter who does it. So I think, um, I think breaking that gate down and uh, making it easier for people to see theatrical releases at home is a good idea. And I think twenty dollars, maybe twenty five, would be a fair price. And then uh, that way, that way it covers in case to more than one person is watching the movie. So like I said. Uh, if you're an AMC Stubbs member and you have experience with that feature, let me know. I'm very curious about it, but for right now, like, I've seen all the stuff that they're promoting, so I have no reason to try it out. So, we'll see. I think having, this will probably be what I use for, uh, when Trolls 2 comes out, but, um, I'm very curious to see if they keep this up after the quarantine is over. The quarantine period is over and we try to get back to the way things, you know, the, you know, the old ways, if this will still maintain afterwards or if the studios will cut, cut, you know, cut cord and cut the cord and, and you know, jump ship um, and try to go back to the way things were because profit or who knows why. But I think having this option is great for people. And I think uh, in the wake of this whole quarantine and pro this quarantining process, and the um, fear of spreading the disease and the need for social distancing, at least for the time being, now would be the time to experiment with this idea and see if it works. So, so yeah, we'll see, we'll see if this keeps up uh, after the quarantine is over. But for right now, I think it's an interesting new, new um, evolution in the theatrical movie-going experience to kind of bring that experience home in a limited capacity. Cause that's the other thing. It's like, you can watch, that's why I like the idea of being able to watch the Met on a movie screen or seeing Broadway shows on a movie screen because taking away that barrier of entry doesn't change the fact that it's a technically different experience. Cause you're not seeing this live experience live, you're seeing it filmed. It's slightly different. So seeing a movie on the big screen is not, not comparable to seeing it on your screen. It's always going to be slightly different. And there's always something about that cinema going experience that some people like me enjoy. 
So and cinemas aren't going to go away entirely. This isn't the death of the cinemas as we know it. But it's going to be an interesting evolution to see from here. And so uh, actually in the wake of there not being a, a weekend box office, I'm going to take a look at the uh, Blu-ray charts. Take a look at what people are watching on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, if you look at the weekly Blu-ray uh, DVD chart, I'm doing this through the-numbers.com. Uh, the number one movie right now, uh, I'm sorry, why is it back up in January? Okay, hold on a sec. I think I might have to go to Rotten Tomatoes, because apparently the numbers isn't up, up to date from January, oddly enough. Which is weird, because people would still be buying DVDs and Blu-rays. Hold on. Let me, ooh. Does IMDb have it? Let's see, uh, DVD and Blu-ray releases, du -du -du -du. list activity, tell your friends, um, they don't have, no, they don't have, uh, sales numbers, um, so let's take a look at, I think Rotten Tomatoes has it in terms of the best-selling DVD sales and streaming stuff. Let's see. Movies and DVDs. Weekend earnings. Netflix streaming. Blah, blah, blah. Top rentals. Here we go. Uh, top rentals. Top DVD and streaming. Not popular. I'm talking about sales. Do they not have the sales? I thought they had the same. Hold on, let me go to the main website. What's the thing on there? Ah, jeez, come on, come on, don't don't screw up on me now, Rotten Tomatoes. Ah, it's not loading. Hold on, all right. There's numbers. Da, 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 da. Let's try this one, degonline.org. Uh, week ended in 321, so they don't have it for this past week. Weird. Uh, they must get it, like, on the Monday or something. Let's try this one. That's the UK's biggest thing. Ah, oh, jeez. But Amazon bestsellers. Uh, bestsellers on Amazon are like 1917, which just came out. Jumanji to the Next Level, which people are getting. Uh, Harry Potter, the Complete 8 Film Collection for some reason. Knives Out, the Complete Friends series for some reason. The Complete Hunger Games. Not, yeah, this isn't exactly, uh, it's not the same as the box office, so I'm trying to figure out, um, here, let's try, here we go, let's try this, uh, 
Amazon's bestsellers uh, on digital video. Uh, top 10 great get. I'm sorry, Gay's Anatomy? Okay, an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, Midway's number nine. Uh, Rise of Skywalker, Bombshell, Uncut Gems, The Gentleman, Greatest Showman, Knives Out, Jumanji, and Bloodshot is doing actually really well. So apparently Bloodshot is the best-selling on Amazon Video. Best-selling better than Onward, uh, which is the next best-selling of the... Um, of the early access movies. And then the next one after that is. Uh, I still believe and birds of prey down in the forties. So it looks like people are checking out bloodshot now that it's on demand. And um, hopefully that'll kind of offset what happened in, uh, in the theaters. We'll see. But yeah, once again, there's no real like sales figures either there's not really a compilation of the sales figures for on-demand stuff and that's just through amazon too so we're not getting like the numbers for apple or google play or whatnot oh well guess we're not going to be looking to look at any numbers for the time being not to get used to that oh well and uh once again no new releases uh although we can't look at the new release uh in terms of what's coming out on dvd so like this we had um 1917 come out uh the grudge remake came out and uncut gems came out on video uh this past week that was like in the beginning of march uh the last last week we had the banker which is on apple tv and big time adolescence on hulu emma came out uh the hunt the invisible man onward Something called The Platform on Netflix? Okay, yeah, I've been seeing bits for that. It's like some prison escape thing. Uh, the next big release date is going to be... Oh, wait, no, the uh, 24th. Uh, we got that. That was this last week. So we had Birds of Prey, Bloodshot, uh, Clemency, which I still need to check out. Um, Doolittle, The Gentleman, uh, Little Women, Neverland, Neverland, whatever that is. Shooting the Mafia, Song of Names, The Way Back um okay so the next big release date is gonna be a week from the 24th which is the 31st we've got coachella 20 years in the desert the current war director's cut i'm gonna have to check that out uh showboat from criterion the uh 1936 movie is getting a criterion release no big um dvd releases this coming week it looks like it's gonna be a light one and then um, after that, uh, looking come looking into next week, we've got more stuff I've never heard of. Something on Disney Plus for elephants. Um, Coffee and Kareem's coming to Netflix. Ooh, this is interesting. It's got stuff for the Netflix and Apple TV and Hulu stuff releases. Um, huh. So you have to keep my eye on this uh, from this uh, the numbers release schedule. Alrighty, uh, but yeah, for right now, that's not going to be a whole lot. Uh, the stuff I I've seen already, uh, you guys will have a chance to check out on home video, and um, yeah, so we'll see uh, uh, what comes up next week. And uh, that about does it for this week's episode, which means it is time for the plugs. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyKitNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by favoriting us on your web browser and whitelisting us on your ad blocker. While you're there, check out all of our other fine programming. We've got Dungeons and Dragon Types, the D&D actual play podcast, where instead of uh, fighting monsters, we catch Pokemon. And uh, our most recent episode came out on Wednesday, and we're going to be recording a whole bunch in a row coming soon. So, we're, uh, But we're still keeping our main release schedule. Uh, so the next one won't be out until April. And then, uh, ne- then we, of course, you've got uh, the latest episode of Living in the Stacks, which is about a paranormal romance story, which is really interesting. And it's got minion sex in it. You should go check out Living in the Stacks for that sex stuff uh you can also check out all of donna's stuff over on the snarcast once more with feeling beyond the cabin in the woods the family business all of that and then uh, if you're a podcaster and would like to join our fledgling little family you can do so by sending us uh inquiries at gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com uh for popcorn junkie and everything else you can find us on apple Podcasts, google play spotify spreaker stitcher iheart radio and uh, if, we're ever, if we're not on your podcast provider, let me know so I can add us and make sure to leave a five-star rating and review. Let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. You can also find us on social media at facebook.com slash popcornjunkie, twitter.com, uh, we are at cornjunkiepod, Instagram at popcornjunkiepodcast, very quiet on there now that there's not a uh, theatrical release to showcase, uh, letterboxed uh, at cornjunkiepod, um, Stardust at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. And then uh, you can also support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Popcorn Junkie. I'm hoping to try and revitalize and do some new stuff with it. Uh, That can only be possible for you, for you, for you know, by donating as little as $1 a month. That once again, like I don't like gatekeeping uh, when it comes to theatrical releases. I don't gatekeep when it comes to. Uh, Patreon either. As little as a dollar a month and you get to help create content for the show. I know times are tough. You don't have to donate. But if you have some money to spare and you want to help help this podcast out, you can do so by donating as little as $1 a month to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. And then uh, if there's any kind of feedback you want to give, any, any kind of thoughts on what I reviewed, uh, if there's any kind of your, th- your thoughts on uh, seeing movies, seeing theatrical releases at home, uh, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I will either read it out pa- as a paraphrase, but if you want me to mention you by name, you can uh, say so in either the subject line or in the message, giving me explicit permission to do so. Um, and yeah, uh, that does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and we're going to make it through this together, folks. You know, one day at a time. Just keep washing them hands. Song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantdark.com for more of his artwork. Big cats, like exotic animals, the exotic animal trade. Like, oh, hey, pizza's done. Uh, here, I'll get right back to it.